This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hi there, Dr. Jen Lincoln here. I can't come to the phone right now, but we'll likely have an opening later on. Please leave me a message and I'll be at your cervix. I mean, <laughs> service in no time. Hey everyone, welcome to the Let's Talk About Down There podcast. I am your host, board certified OBGYN, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. And this week's episode, we've got two questions that are seemingly unrelated. But when the first one came in and I was preparing to answer it, it's about something called the MTHFR gene mutation. And I had that whole episode ready to go. And then a second question came in that may not seem related at all on first glance. It actually has to do with abortion restrictions and trying to conceive. And I decided I was going to answer it in this episode because actually the two fit perfectly together and illustrate why abortion bans and abortion restrictions in a very real-time way, how they harm people who are actually trying to actively build their families. So let's have a listen to our first question. We're going to talk all about this silly gene and why it's so hard to pronounce. And then we'll get to our second one. So let's have a listen to our caller, Kathy. Hi, Dr. Jen. My name is Kathy. Uh, I recently found out that my mother uh, has the MTHFR gene single mutation. And she says that that basically means folic acid can be toxic to the body. My husband and I are planning on starting a family in the new future. And I know folic acid a really important part of prenatal care. So I plan to talk to my doctor about this when I next see her. But in the meantime, I'm a bit overwhelmed with the information online and was very curious about your take on this mutation and how that affects um, people who are planning to get pregnant or are pregnant. Thank you. Kathy, excellent question and one that I have gotten in a few different forms and I just haven't answered it yet. So we're going to do it today. So what I want to talk about is what the heck is the MTHFR gene mutation? Why is folic acid important in pregnancy? And what are my top recommendations for trying to conceive? And do you need to freak out? Because I'm going to tell you, I don't think you do, but I want to actually give you information so that you understand why and you're not just taking my word for it. So I do love that you do plan to talk about it with your provider, but I can understand that you want to get as much information as you can to be informed and empowered before and when you go to that visit. So let's talk about the MTHFR gene. We sometimes call it the Monday, Thursday, Friday gene or the mother bleep gene, as you can see, the letters sort of seem like an abbreviation for that. But Basically, let's go back to the super basics. It's a gene in your DNA, and this gene makes the MTHFR protein. And MTHFR stands for methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. And that's why we use the abbreviation. In medicine, we use way too many abbreviations, but this is one that I will 100% say this one makes sense. So this MTHFR protein, this enzyme plays a role in folate processing. And guess what? We're jumping right into this week's class is in session, where we hit up this week's teachable moment. Welcome to the health class you wish you had in high school and I'm pretty certain you didn't get this in high school, and we're jumping right to it because it's important to frame the entire discussion of what the heck MTHFR does. What is the difference between folate and folic acid? Maybe some of you got this in high school. I know I didn't. If I did, I don't remember it. But I did get it in medical school and in training, and 
and here's sort of the overview. I promise we won't get into too much chemistry here, but we tend to use these terms interchangeably, but they're not exactly the same. So folate is the overarching term for many forms of vitamin B9. So think of it as an umbrella term. There's a few different forms of B9 and we tend to lump them in and we call it folate. B9 is needed for a few different really important things. We need it to make DNA, kind of important, cell growth, cell function, and in these methylation reactions that allow us to process the food we eat. So there's a lot of things that we eat and we consume and our body can't use it in the form that we do. And we quote unquote, break it down with enzymes and different chemical reactions. And some of those include adding these little compounds, these little methylene compounds, removing things that then our body says, oh, cool. We can actually get this into our cells, into the bloodstream, and now it's in a usable form. Think of it like you have a present and you have to unwrap it and put the batteries in, or I don't know, I'm making this up as I go on, before you can actually use the present. So that is what B9 is important in doing. So we can't absorb folate as it is. So these different types of folate, they need to be broken down by enzymes that can be found in our intestines. So that's basically what folate is. Now, folic acid is one type of B9 vitamin. It's actually, it's synthetic. And you might hear synthetic and go, oh my goodness, that's bad. It's not natural, right? Because so many of my episodes are about people saying, well, natural is better. It's actually not true. So folic acid, it's synthetic. And that means that it's made, doesn't occur in nature. And it's what we usually see in foods that are fortified when they say they're fortified with folic acid. So you'll see that in cereals and in rice and in pastas. And when it comes to folic acid, Nothing could be further from the truth of saying synthetic is bad. Folic acid supplementation has been a game changer in decreasing the development of neural tube defects. There's a lot more to come on that later. And the reason we use folic acid supplementation and fortification in foods instead of the naturally occurring folate is because folic acid is more heat stable. That's the first part of why we do it. So that means that in things that are gonna be baked or cooked like breads or pastas, naturally occurring folate can break down, whereas folic acid is able to remain in its form, and then you're actually able to get it into your body, and then it actually increases your folic acid levels. That's a good thing. That's the whole point. It's also much more easily absorbed by the body. It's already in that form that you can absorb. So that is why you'll see a lot of things are fortified with folic acid, and that's why you'll see the vast majority of vitamins have folic acid instead of folate. But getting back to folate, so like I said, it includes folic acid and other forms of B9 like 5-methyltetrahydrofolate or 5-MTHF and other ridiculously big names like this. You can find it in nature. You can find it in green leafy vegetables and beans and citrus. And you might be thinking, well, if it's natural and I still like, like things that are natural, I'd rather get my vitamins from my foods than from a bottle. I'm just going to go ahead and eat things with folate. It's actually hard to get the recommended amount of folate when we eat our regular diets. Now, of course, some people who live for beans and veggies, like, yeah, you may hit that. But for the vast majority of us, we don't. And especially when you're trying to conceive or when you're, you're pregnant and folic acid is really important, it's really important to get this in supplementation form. So yes, I will be getting into this more in what to do when trying to conceive, but I wanted to lay this little groundwork for the rest of our discussion. Okay, class dismissed. And yes, I'm sorry, it was an early one. So back to the MTHFR genes. We all have two copies, one that come from our mom and one from our dad. And mutations can exist in one copy or in both copies. 
And actually, it's better to call them variants rather than true mutations because they're so common. In fact, more people in the United States have a variant than those who don't. So if you ask me, it sounds like having a variant is actually the norm. And that's the message I want to lean into you and really hit home today because your mom mentioned that she had a variant and then told you, oh my goodness, this is really going to affect things. And now you're really worried. And I'm hoping we can reframe mutation as a variant and that it's actually very normal. There are a few different kinds of variants. It sounds like the one your mom had has been associated with how folate and folic acid are processed. I can't say because I don't have obviously all the information in front of me and I'm not giving medical advice. So we have seen that in people with one variant combination, they can have slightly lower folate levels in their blood, like a 16% lower level when looking at the blood of people who have that variant versus people who don't. And other variants show no change in this blood level or how your body can metabolize folate. Now, before we get really worried, go, my goodness, they have a 16% lower level of folate. That means that I don't have enough folate. That means that I've got to do something special when I'm trying to conceive. We haven't seen that play out. So if you have one or even two variants of the MTHFR variant known as C677T, you can still process folate and folic acid. However, there's a lot of misinformation online that says otherwise, and it's untrue. And so your mom's saying that folic acid is toxic to you. If you've got this variant, that's not exactly true. And I am not here to say that what you saw online, like you're not smart enough and you didn't understand what you read. Oh, friend, no, no, no. There is so much stuff when it comes to MTHFR on social media, on websites, most often by people who are selling you a supplement, selling you a course, who lean more into the alternative medicine practices. And I just want to say that it's really important if we're telling people that they have a gene that can cause an issue to have data and science to back that up. So we have not seen that people who have these variants, and again, remember, there's a lot of us out there who typically have toxicity from folate or can't absorb it, or then have kids who have more issues because of it. We, we just don't have that data yet. So it's really important to know that sometimes bad information gets out there and it gets pushed and it seems to make sense. And it's a bit of a complicated topic. And if the data changes, I'll let you know. But let's now talk about why so many people are even talking about this and why folic acid is such a hot topic when it comes to trying to conceive. This is the portion of the podcast where we talk about folic acid trying to conceive and neural tube defects. Super fun for anyone who has been in medicine and is going back to that time where they had those embryology lectures. I know for me, it was in my first year of med school. I wanted to scream by the end of it. It was super cool, but it was also really granular and nitty gritty. And it wasn't my favorite thing, but here's why we learned it. So when a fetus is developing, it's not like everything happens all at the same time. There are different windows of development where certain things happen, certain body systems develop. That also means that there are windows in that development where being exposed to things can cause a lot of damage as opposed to in a different time and a time period where it's really important that you have the nutrients and vitamins and the, the environment where that development can happen correctly. So neural tube defects 
you might guess it has to do with the neural tubes. So you're probably thinking like brain and spinal cord, and you're exactly right. So these are birth defects in the brain and the spinal cord. Some of the most common ones that you may have heard of are anencephaly. And I hate to say that maybe the greater public now hears more about anencephaly because now in a post-real world where people are being forced to carry pregnancies to term, including pregnancies that we know will never result in a live birth or a, you know, a normal life, anencephaly is one that has been in the news more commonly. So this is when you're born without a brain. And so these babies can be born alive and they can live for a little bit, but they'll never live long term. They don't have the majority of their brain. And this is often a reason that people, if it's diagnosed prenatally, will choose to terminate for obvious reasons because they don't want to continue a pregnancy. They don't want to expose themselves to that emotional trauma, the physical concerns of possibly being pregnant. Uh, can you see how this is potentially linking into my second question? The second most common neural tube defect that we see is something called spina bifida. So this is where when the bones in the spinal cord are developing, they don't completely fuse. And so you'll see, you know, part of the spinal cord will be exposed and that can result in death. It can result in paralysis. There's different degrees of it. These neural tube defects happen in about one in 3000 pregnancies in the United States a year. And they happen super early. This part of the fetus is developing at about four weeks of pregnancy. And for most people, that's before they even know they're pregnant. So just a quick refresher on when you can diagnose your pregnancy. If your menstrual cycle is a perfect 28 or 30 days apart, the earliest you can really diagnose your pregnancy by taking a home pregnancy test, being on a stick and getting that positive is right around when you would miss your period. So that would make you about four weeks pregnant. Now, a lot of us don't have perfect cycles or we don't diagnose it that early. So let's say you figure out you're pregnant at five or six weeks pregnant. And if you just start taking a prenatal vitamin that has folic acid in it, you have missed the window when folic acid supplementation is the most important because folic acid is super important in supporting the normal development of the neural tube. So like I said, this part of the fetus is forming for a lot of people before we even know we're pregnant. And a game changer in reducing these kinds of birth defects was when folic acid supplementation happened. And like I said, we rarely get enough in our diet. We know that when we get the right amount, the risk of having a fetus with a neural tube defect drops drastically. So the goal that we recommend for most people is 400 micrograms, not milligrams, 400 micrograms of folic acid a day. It is true that we will recommend higher levels for people who have certain issues or certain conditions. So for sure, you'll want to check in with your healthcare provider. And at a minimum, we recommend starting it a month before you try to conceive. Why before you try to conceive? Two reasons. One, like I said, you might not even know you're pregnant by the time you are and you've missed that window where this vitamin is really important. And number two, actually taking it a few months beforehand is important because it can take a few months for your blood levels to get up to the level of folate needed to prevent neural tube defects. And here's a quick history lesson because I love the history of medicine and the history of many things. We didn't know that folic acid was the hero that it is and what we really need to prevent neural tube defects until a study in 1991 was done. And this study was actually stopped early because it was so obvious that supplementing with folic acid worked. So in people who got these capsules that had folic acid, so they had a group that did and a group that didn't, and they were blinded, meaning we didn't know who got what. But in the people who got folic acid supplementation, the neural tube defect rate was reduced by 71%. That is an amazing intervention when it comes to something having to do with medicine. 
And then they looked at people who were taking these vitamins, the ones with folic acid, both before trying to conceive and then continuing in the first few weeks of pregnancy. And that risk of neural tube defect was decreased by 83%. That's amazing. And I will put a link in the show notes. There's a really interesting deep dive into the history of why we didn't figure this out until the 90s. It should have been done sooner. And I just think it's a cool read. So we figured this out in the 90s. Folic acid, we love it, decreases the risk of a very common birth defect. Um, and that's why you see the supplementation that you see in rice and cereals and pastas. The goal that, you know, of course, we could tell everybody, well, if you're of childbearing age and you may get pregnant or you're actively trying to conceive, you can take folic acid and go to the pharmacy and get something off the shelves. Yeah, okay. Some of us are certainly doing that. But considering that half of pregnancies in the United States are unplanned, um, from a public health strategy, it's better to just put this folic acid in foods that everybody's eating. And then if people happen to get pregnant, they will hopefully have eaten foods with folic acid in it. And if they choose to continue the pregnancy, they will have a fetus who is unaffected by a neural tube defect. So that is public health 101. Now, what about folic acid versus folate supplements? Because there is a lot of internet chatter on this. And like I said, what's in traditional prenatal vitamins is folic acid. And I've already hit on the point that people will say, well, that's synthetic. It's not better. The reason folic acid isn't a vitamin as opposed to folate is because that is what has been studied. And other forms of folate supplements, they haven't been studied. And therefore, we don't know if they are as good as preventing neural tube defects. Do they probably work just as well? Yeah, probably. I mean, it makes sense, right? But we just don't have that data and we'll never get that data because when we have seen that folic acid is such a game changer in reducing neural tube defects, there is no study that we could do where we could give one group of people folic acid and the other group of people folate because it's just so unethical. Because what if it doesn't work? And then we have purposely given people a vitamin that we didn't know when we had such a good vitamin available, and then they end up pregnant with babies who have neural tube defects. It's just never going to happen. It's just not ethical. It's a separate issue if people would voluntarily do this. And maybe we'll get retrospective data, which is where we'll have people who opted on their own to take vitamins with folate or folate supplements as opposed to folic acid studies. And that probably will happen at some point. We'll have that data and we can look back and be like, oh yeah, look at that. There was no difference, but we'll never get sort of this gold standard randomized control trial like we had in the 90s because the ethics just aren't there. So no, folate supplements such as 5-methyltetrahydrofolate have not been studied enough to say that they should replace folic acid, even if you do have an MTHFR variant. However, is it harmful? Probably not. You will find that physicians, especially the American College of OBGYN, have specifically come out with statements that say that folic acid is what is studied, is what is recommended. And then you might see other people, you know, who might be in other fields who say actually folate is better. I think that we're splitting hairs. I think if you want to go with what is the most studied, folic acid is where it's at. And you can combine that with getting folate in your diet as well. Um, but it's definitely, if you've got more questions, you can certainly ask your healthcare provider. But I would try to zoom out to the question and the idea that because you have a variant, which again, the vast majority of us do, you do not need a special vitamin. You do not have to worry about folic acid or folate being toxic to you. And the fact that you're aware of this is great. And if you're starting to try to conceive, you know, doing that is important and starting those vitamins. But I am hoping that maybe this information helps you feel a little less stressed out about 
the situation that you that you called in with. So I, I love this question. Now we are going to listen to a second question. And as you listen to this, I want you to think, okay, why is Dr. Jen linking it into this episode? So let's have a listen to Kate. Hey there, my name's Kate. I love your podcast. I just had a question. Um, my state's currently in the process of passing a 12-week abortion ban. And a lot of the things that you talked about, you know, are relating to getting access to abortion pills and things like that. Um, I'm actually in a different situation. I'm planning on conceiving in the next year. And I'm kind of having some concerns if there are complications with pregnancy and things like that. Is this something I need to worry about as far as, you know, avoiding getting pregnant anytime soon, kind of that risk going forward? What advice do you have for, you know, potential soon-to-be moms in this kind of current state with the world? Thank you. Okay. So a sad question, right? And Kate, this is exactly what we've been saying, that abortion bans aren't just about people getting abortions, right? And this affects people who are actually trying to grow their families, because just like we talked about in the previous question, not every pregnancy develops normally, and not every pregnancy can continue to term for a various amount of reasons. And having abortion bans in place affects people who are trying to grow their families. Now, I am imagining that you were talking about North Carolina, because this is the exact state that is in the process of passing a 12-week abortion ban. And so I want to talk about it. And I want to talk about this ban more, especially if you might be listening and thinking, whatever, 12 weeks, that's plenty of time to figure these things out, right? Like you said, Dr. Jen, this happens that one particular birth defect happens at like four weeks. So give me a break. And I think we should listen with an open mind to understand why people like me are saying how these bans are harmful. Let's talk about normal prenatal care. And let's use the example above of a neural tube defect, right? Yeah, I told you that it happens around four weeks of development, but it's not normally diagnosed until 18 to 20 weeks of pregnancy. Now, there are blood tests like alpha-fetoprotein, also known as AFP, that can be drawn earlier at about 15 to 16 weeks. We're still past that 12 weeks, my friends. But it's not sensitive or specific for only a neural tube defect. So that's not normally done. And the best and most important, most accurate way to diagnose a neural tube defect is an ultrasound. And that ultrasound is usually done most accurately at the earliest 18 weeks. So do you see how that's past 12 weeks? That's just one example. But I do want to break down the ban farther because you might be saying, well, Dr. Jen, I heard actually that you can still get an abortion in North Carolina later than that um, if there are situations like fetal anomalies. So let's zoom into the North Carolina ban. And then I'm going to answer your question, Kate, about what I think that you might have to do in your state. So the ban in North Carolina, which just to set the stage, um, the majority of North Carolinans don't want 57% actually said that they don't support even a 20-week ban. They actually would want to move it later. So they certainly don't support a 12-week ban. So this is, this is politics 101. So the new law, which was vetoed by the governor, but then overturned by the supermajority in the um, Senate and House, bans abortion at 12 weeks. It does allow abortion up until 20 weeks if it's rape or incest. Um, but keep in mind that that means that the pregnant person has to disclose that. Not everyone wants to disclose that to their healthcare provider. And the physician then has to report it. So extra burden there. And if the person disclosing it feels uncomfortable about that, if they know that a physician has to report it, um, they might choose to not. And they might end up having to carry their rapist baby to term. Really cool. 
they do allow abortion up to 24 weeks if there's an anomaly or a birth defect. And you, again, I say, see, Dr. Jen, told you, you just told me that you could diagnose a neural tube defect at 20 weeks and you still got plenty of time. <laughs> Hold up, my friend. What they specifically say is a life-limiting anomaly as diagnosed by a qualified physician of a physical or genetic condition that is defined as life-limiting and is uniformly diagnosable. That sounds like a lot of gibberish, but this is actually the problem. What one physician might say is life-limiting, like a neural tube defect, another one might say, well, they can still live their life. They can still be fine. I mean, they might need surgery and, and probably they won't be paralyzed, but nope, I disagree. So trying to get physicians to agree on what is life-limiting and then uniformly diagnosable is really difficult. It isn't just a matter of squabbling. This is a matter of physicians being accused of a crime and potentially having to pay a fine or serve jail time. So it's really hard to just go, oh, it's so simple. They just need to sign a piece of paper and it's fine. It's not. It's not that simple at all. And can you imagine you are sitting there as the pregnant person saying, well, I don't want you guys to decide what is limiting enough or uniformly diagnosable enough. I'm telling you sitting here, I can't handle this. I can't handle a child who may have these special needs. I don't want to continue this pregnancy. I can't emotionally handle it. I can't physically handle it. I can't financially handle it. I already have three kids. I have a low income job and they're saying, sorry, now we have to do the paperwork and we get to decide for you. So do you see how, uh, oh, they allow it up to 24 weeks very quickly becomes a lot more restrictive than that? So in the case of up above, if somebody has a neural tube defect, they may not qualify for that abortion at 23 weeks for an anomaly. Do you see how sick and twisted it is? Let's dive a bit more into this law so that Kate, who called in with her question, can understand what this sort of ban might mean for her prenatal care. So they also say that, yes, there is an exception for medical emergencies for an abortion if there is the risk of death or serious risk of substantial and irreversible physical impairment of a major bodily function. We have seen this play out elsewhere in Texas, in Tennessee, in other states where doctors, that's really vague. Pregnant people can go from being amazingly healthy and tolerating something fine, whether it's bleeding or an infection, to septic and almost dead in 30 minutes. So the fact that these doctors will have to wait until their patients get sick enough to meet this qualification so that they know they won't go to jail means that people will die and people will end up sicker than they have to. And it means that treatment will be delayed because they'll have to consult to the hospital lawyers who knew nothing about medicine and the hospital ethicists, which know nothing about medicine and are always centering the hospital and their risk above the health of the patient. Cool, right? Oh, and also, just like we see this everywhere else, in North Carolina, they specifically exclude mental health, meaning that if somebody gets pregnant and then is suicidal because they're pregnant, they don't care. They're like, cool, go ahead and go kill yourself. They don't consider any sort of mental health reasons as a medical emergency. Really awesome, right? Thank you. Thank you, North Carolina. They would also prohibit an abortion being performed if the doctor who is performing the abortion knows that the reasons for the abortion are the following. So the child's sex, actual or presumed race, or the presumed presence, the presence of Down syndrome. I have no idea why they're specifically saying that in this difference, in this, you know, chromosomal disorder, Down syndrome, trisomy 21, you can't choose to terminate. Now, there are plenty of people who figure out prenatally that they are carrying a fetus with Down syndrome and choose to continue the pregnancy. 
and I love that for them. That's their choice. There are also a lot of people who, when they receive this diagnosis, they choose not to continue this pregnancy. Now, you may see and you think you know about Down syndrome because you've seen pictures of people with it, and it seems like a, not that bad of a chromosomal abnormality, right? It's actually a spectrum. And kids with Down syndrome can have vastly different experiences in their health. Very often, they're born with heart defects that require open-heart surgery. These are people who are going to require lifelong assistance. Now, I am not here to say that you should have an abortion if you have a baby with Down syndrome. Absolutely not. I'm saying it should be your choice. And understand that if you choose to parent somebody with Down syndrome, this is a lifelong commitment, a financial commitment. This commits this child to potentially needing multiple surgeries, to needing a lot of special assistance. And it is up to you if you're able to provide that. But it's not up to you if you live in North Carolina. That's an important point to hit home. The other things that this law requires is that they require in-person visits for counseling, for both medication and surgical abortion counseling. Um, this is new. It used to be that parts of it could be over the phone. So they have a 72-hour waiting period. This is not new, um, but this waiting period, it used to be that you could call in, get your counseling, and then wait the 72 hours, and then you could come in and have your surgical abortion or come in and get your medication. Now it has to be in person. For medication abortion specifically, this law now adds in a mandatory follow-up visit seven to 10 days after the medication abortion. They claim it's to make the abortion safer. Um, there's no data to support this at all. And if you're like, what the... F exactly, exactly. So now you're requiring people to come in multiple times. And it would be one thing if that actually made outcomes better, but it doesn't. So just put yourself in the position of somebody who's already got two kids, who works at McDonald's, who can't take time off because she'll lose her job, who has to take three buses to get to this clinic. And now you're adding all these extra in-person appointments, which are completely unnecessary. Yeah, this means that more people who don't feel physically, mentally, financially, emotionally prepared to continue a pregnancy well for the pure reason that they can't lose their job because their kids have to eat. Thank you, North Carolina. This law now makes women have to see and see the ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, which again, early in pregnancy is not an actual heartbeat, but that's a topic for another day. So they have to be forced to look at something, even if they're sure. And we know that when people do this, if they already are certain in their decision to have an abortion, it's not going to change anything. It's just going to add trauma, potentially. You're taking away their choice to not see or hear something. You're forcing them. Cool. There also, this law now requires that doctors provide printed materials and a website that contains phone numbers and addresses of facilities that provide these services free of charge. So like free ultrasounds, those kinds of things. You want to know what those facilities are? Anti-abortion centers. Yeah, the ones that actively talk people out of abortion and do it in medically inaccurate ways and are super coercive. And I've covered oodles of times elsewhere before. So now we're going to, we're going to send patients to them and give them information. Fantastic. For medication abortion specifically on the consent form, there has to be a detailed list of risks, which on every consent form for any surgery or procedure we do, absolutely we talk about that. I'm not against that in the general speech. However, they include false risks and they don't have to be medically accurate. They talk about the risk of uh, sterility. So the risk that a medication abortion can impact your future fertility. This is a lie. This is a lie, and this is in the law, that they are forcing women and pregnant people to be told by their doctors. They are writing lies into the law, and I can't stand it. 
they do the same for surgical abortion, even though for some reason on this part of the consent, they say that the risks must be conveyed only when medically accurate. However, they then include a medically inaccurate risk um, where they say that abortion increases a risk of preterm birth. And also they have to list the risk of adverse psychological effects associated with abortion, even though the risk of regret for abortion is remarkably low. And we have lots of data to show this and that the psychological feelings, the number one psychological outcome of abortion in somebody who chooses abortion for themselves is relief. But yet they are forcing doctors to tell people that there's negative psychological effects associated with abortion. Lies. It's lies. And this law also enacts the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Mm -hmm. Under this law, it says, in the event that an abortion results in the expulsion or extraction of a fetus with a beating heart, pulsation of the umbilical cord, or movement of voluntary muscles, healthcare providers would be required to exercise the same degree of care to preserve life that would be rendered to a newborn of the same gestational age. Meaning, let's say you have an abortion for a 23-week fetus that has an anomaly. You, know, you got through all the freaking paperwork. You got through all the crap that North Carolina requires. You choose an induction of labor for this, which is an abortion. And you deliver a fetus that has a heartbeat, even if it's a heartbeat that's not compatible with fetal life. Like, because a normal fetal heartbeat is above 110 beats per minute. Let's say it's 80 beats per minute. And the whole intention of this induction abortion was to terminate the pregnancy. Under this law, providers in North Carolina have to resuscitate this fetus and do the same things they would do if you were delivering a 23-week with the intention of resuscitation and not an abortion. This exposes the fetus to, you know, IVs, medications, intubations. This forces the healthcare providers to do this even against the parents' wishes. And this is in the law. And now hospitals are going to have to do this out of fear of getting in trouble. It is going to take healthcare staff. It is going to take up room in the neonatal intensive care unit. And it's going to lead to a lot of babies who will eventually die. Or if they do live, they will be severely, severely impacted in terms of strokes and seizures and, and not normal development, lots of developmental delay, all because of a law based in no science, but based in control and coercion and this false narrative that it's pro-life when it's all about forced birth. This is the perfect moment for our clitorally segment where I call out things that make me go, are you clitorally literally kidding me? And this is all about North Carolina State Representative Tricia Cotham. She ran on a platform of supporting abortion access, and she signed on a bill as a co-sponsor that was to codify Roe v. Wade in North Carolina. And then last month, she switched parties to the Republican Party. And her vote is what allowed the legislature to overturn the Democratic North Carolina governor's veto of this exact ban that has now been overturned and will go into effect in North Carolina on July 1st. So all this stuff that I read you about what the North Carolina law is, it goes into effect on July 1st. What's even worse, so not only was she elected by the people she represented to run on a Democratic platform to fight for abortion access, she has also previously shared her own personal experience of abortion and why she thinks that it 
deserves to be the choice between the pregnant person and the doctor. Let's even have a listen to her saying this. Hold on to your hats, my friends. This decision was up to me, my husband, my doctor, and my God. It was not up to any of you in this chamber. So that's Representative Cotham talking about her own abortion and how it was so important that she and her doctor and her, you know, her spiritual beliefs, her, her husband, they were the only ones who made this decision. And now she has flopped over to an anti-abortion party, an anti-abortion stance, and she believes that this bill is a compromise. Because, as she says, and as how a lot of the media say, it's a quote-unquote 12-week ban, right? It's not a six-week ban. It's not so terrible. It's a 12-week ban. I hope you understand today how this is so much more than a 12-week ban. So now that you know this, Kate, your question of what advice do I have for you and the potential people who are trying to conceive in this kind of a state, what should you have to think about? And the bottom line is, is that it is riskier for you in North Carolina to try to get pregnant than it would be for me in Oregon or someone in New York or California because of all of these laws. So what can you actually do about it? Number one, know, know about it and make informed choices on whether or not you want to get pregnant in these states. And I'm not trying to scare you out of it, but just know that there's some extra things you have to think about. I think it's really important that you start taking a prenatal vitamin. I mean, for all reasons, I think it's really important to track your cycles. That way you can diagnose your pregnancy as early as it happens. And you can get ovulation predictor kits so you can know when you're ovulating. You can figure out how long your cycle is. You can get pregnancy tests that are enormously cheap. You can get them on Amazon or the dollar store. And both these and ovulation predictor kits, um, what you get off Amazon, the dollar store, it's all the same. There is nothing special that we have at the doctor's office. So you don't need some special thing like that. I think it's really important to even have a healthcare provider who you've established care with. I think a preconception visit is important for everybody, but even more important for people in banned states, because that means that you have met with them ahead of time. You have talked about how to minimize your risk of complications. They'll review your medications, make sure everything's compatible with pregnancy. They'll talk about how to get you off to your healthiest start. But the real important thing is it means that you'll be an established patient and you should be able to get your first prenatal visit in sooner. Healthcare access is a crisis in this country. And I know people who have called for new prenatal visit appointments and they can't get in until they're 12 or 14 weeks pregnant. So they're already three or four months. And that's not okay. And especially in a state like North Carolina, that puts your care behind. There are prenatal tests that we can do early in the first trimester. Now, not for neural tube defects, those aren't accurate, but for other ones, like for things like trisomy 21, trisomy 18, trisomy 13, and others, that you can get a test done a lot earlier. And then if you see something that's abnormal, you can do something like an amniocentesis. And this is all before even your anatomy ultrasound. What I'm saying basically is that you can get this information before you lose access to abortion. So sooner is better. So having a, an OBGYN or a midwife who you are plugged into before you get pregnant can make it easier to get seen sooner. And then I think you need to be the noisy person if they tell you, even if you've got that, they're like, well, we'll see you at 12 weeks. No, I want to come in now because I'm scared about these bans and I need to make sure that I have everything that I can in order and speak up. And sometimes that means having to make demands. And trust me that healthcare providers are not enjoying this either. 
uh, advocating for yourself is important. I do think that it's important to know that if you end up needing an abortion, one of the things that has already been limited in North Carolina is the access of medication abortion pills. You have to go in person to get them right now. And then with this ban, you have all these extra appointments. You can get abortion pills even before you're pregnant. And if they're stored in a cool, dry place, they're good for up to two years. Now, you might be thinking, Dr. Jen, I told you I want to be pregnant, not that I want to have an abortion. What I'm telling you is that, like I've said, sometimes even wanted pregnancies, things go wrong. It's not the right time. Or you feel like, you know, you need an abortion. Your provider can't provide it, even though you wanted to be pregnant. Sometimes you need to self-manage your own abortion. And there's ways to safely do it. And there's ways to do this and even get pills in all 50 states, even in North Carolina. You can go to Mayday.Health to figure out how. That's Mayday.Health. Full transparency. I am the executive director of that organization. I make no money whether or not you visit that website. So it's, it's truly, it's just an educational website. I think that if you end up needing an abortion and you live in North Carolina and you're not able to get that abortion, your options are medication abortion, as I've discussed, or a surgical abortion and traveling for it. And there are websites that you can go to to help figure out where you could go, to coordinate funds, to discuss the legality of it. Again, that's all in Mayday.Health, and there's a ton of good resources in the resources section of our webpage. So the best thing you can do if you're in a banned state and you're trying to get pregnant is understand the laws, understand what you might need to do if you do need to get that care, and to run through this ahead of time so that if it happens, and I hope that it doesn't, but if it does, you're prepared and you've thought through this in a moment when you're not already emotionally overwhelmed and you feel like there's this time crunch. You want to set aside some funds in case you need to travel. Abortions in the second trimester can cost thousands of dollars, and that's not counting travel, hotel, potential childcare. Yeah, this isn't feel-good stuff, right? Like usually when people are talking about preparing for pregnancy, we're talking about Oh my gosh, what diapers are you going to get? And, and what breast pump? And, and what vitamins are you taking? And I don't want to rob you of that joy. But I do want you to understand that when you are pregnant in a place like North Carolina or Texas or Oklahoma, you have to think about these things. You have to think about who's going to speak for me if I am unconscious in the ICU and my doctors are too afraid to act. Do I have an advanced directive? Do I have a will? This is super serious stuff. And this is what's coming from these abortion bans. And that's why we say these bans are not pro-life, they're forced birth. And people will die because of these bans, including people who are trying to grow their family. So what have we learned today? Some of this stuff is heavy stuff. It is. But you can be informed and you can be empowered. And you can help cut through the noise and wade through the misinformation that's online, whether it's about the MTHFR variant or what state you're in and what you can access. And you can take back control and you can use your voice and know that if you're in North Carolina or somewhere else, people like me won't stop fighting for you because we know that these bans are affecting people who are trying to grow their families just as much as people who never wanted to get pregnant in the first place. And you all deserve care. And that's how we get to a healthy America. And that's how we support pregnant people. And that's how we actually live up to our values, our American values, right? Of freedom and justice and and the right, everybody having equal access to things, yeah, it doesn't feel that way. So if you've got other questions about this, feel free to drop me a message if you want me to expand on things further, but know that I'm here with you, I see you, and I hope that even though this was a heavier topic, you ended this podcast feeling a little more empowered than when you started. Thank you so much for listening. 
Okay, it's that time where I ask you to rate, review, and follow on your favorite podcast app because we know that's how we get more people talking. So call in at 503-893-2016 and join me online at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. So let's keep the conversation going, my friends. Call in, leave a question, and know that it's okay to have questions about your body, and we're going to answer them. 